Before the days of internet and in YouTube, you we was after ruin Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude. And Jake would be the break the way he's playing with snakes. Enthusiast of highest taste was always trading some tapes. Dusty said it cold to let me know about hard times. And Randy be the cream and he was reaching for new highs. Flair was always going and Andre was so imposing. Doesn't matter if nobody can seem to beat Hulk Hogan. Turnbuckles and territories. We be stuck to screens in 1980s. And we can't feed them and made them believe. By the turnbuckles and territories. Turnbuckles and territories. Welcome back to Turnbuckles and Territories, the Gen X podcast all about 70s and 80s professional wrestling. In today's episode, wrestling stables have been around almost as long as professional wrestling itself. In this episode, we will dig deep into the history of one of the most underrated organizations of all time, the Heenan family. And to help me do that, as always, here today is Barry. What's going on, gentlemen? I am so excited about this one. The Heenan family is one of my absolute favorite people to hate. And also joining us is Captain Kiwi. Hey, how's it going, everybody? The Heenan family is arguably the most underrated and least discussed family with the longest history. I mean, we talk about the Horsemen or the NWO or even smaller little groups that maybe, say, Jim Cornette or one of those guys managed a Kevin Sullivan with his... uh, you know, tree of woe people and stuff, but <laughs> the cosmic cookie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Heenan family, they've been around for a long time and Barry, I'm kind of interested why you felt it so important to talk about this group. Well, if you think about it, George, you know, think back in the last 40 years for the most part, if you can think of a successful heel, somebody that is memorable, somebody that has made their impact as a bad guy in wrestling, odds are they were a part of the Heenan family at some point in time. And I mean, that goes from multiple different organizations, you know, both as a performer and as a manager. I think he was actually more successful as a manager than he ever was as a performer, but that's where he's most remembered. And I mean, it's it's really kind of fascinating when I started digging into the history on this a little bit more and looking at all of the people that were in the Heenan family. I mean, we could spend days listing everybody off, but we're not going to. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we definitely need to keep the podcast to under a day. Oh, that would well, be helpful know. with the editing process. <laughs> 12 hours will be good. Aaron, I know what my experience is with Bobby Heenan and his, you know, groups and the things he's did. Did you have, I know you came in a little bit later. Right to professional wrestling as far as being a fan, but did you have any outstanding memories or anything that when you saw this card coming up on the list that you're like, ooh, I remember blank. I think the memory that sticks out the most for me is when the, the Rockers broke up. Shawn Michaels kicks oh, yeah. Marty Jannetty uh, through the plate <laughs> glass window on Brutus the Barber Beefcake set. And Bobby Heenan says, I knew he was going to do that. And Marty Jannetty, he's such a coward. He jumped through the window. That was right. classic. Jumped. I remember <laughs> this. Oh, God, I remember this. <laughs> I think for all of us, we all have the standout Bobby Heenan or Heenan family memories. And we're going to get into a lot of that discussion later on in the podcast, but we need to start off first right after the break with the origins of the Heenan family and how it all really got started. And Barry's really going to be a big help in this since he is basically the Heenan aficionado. I think he has a Heenan museum somewhere in his house, but listen up, you ham and eggers. That's all I got to (laughs) say. We'll get into that right after the break. 
Tuesday, America takes on the world in USA's professional wrestling special event. Everyone's favorite American, Sergeant Slaughter, takes on Iran's Iron Sheik in the final battle for U.S. supremacy. Then Washington's own Rocky Johnson looks to kill Scotland's Rowdy Roddy Piper and Fiji's Jimmy Superfly Snooker as a score to settle with Tennessee tough guy Dr. D. USA flags down the superstars of wrestling. Bobby Heenan is absolutely one of the most influential people in professional wrestling. He started off as a wrestler, which to those of us who saw him later in his career is completely weird to think about Odd. because the man yeah. did not come off as a wrestler at all. Like his his whole demeanor said weasel, sniveling little manager. <laughs> like there was nothing about him that was imposing or intimidating. You didn't feel like he could ever win at anything. Like I don't think he could have won at life, let alone a professional yeah. wrestling match. But he did. And he started off after his performing career was kind of winding down a little bit, I guess you might say. He started off putting together other professional wrestlers in what was arguably one of the first cliques, one of the first organizations within an organization, right, Barry? One of the first families, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, and it actually, um, so as you mentioned, he had been wrestling for, for a few years and mixed success. I mean, nothing really all that memorable as him as a wrestler. Now, starting in about 74, I think it was, uh, he was in the AWA at that point, the American Wrestling Association, and he started managing uh, a team of Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens. Mm. No, not that okay. one. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I got to clarify. And they actually, you know, had quite a bit of success on that. Uh, later on, he started adding Bobby Duncan Jr. And one of my favorite tag teams, the Blackjacks, uh, Blackjack oh, Lanza yeah. and Blackjack Mulligan. Lanza and Mulligan, right? Yes. Yeah, the Blackjacks were awesome. And for some of our uh, younger listeners, Blackjack Mulligan was actually Bray Wyatt's grandfather. So Bray Wyatt, the Lord of the Fireflies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Captain Weirdo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> love the guy. You know, Aaron kind of reminds me of Bray Wyatt a little bit as we sit here on the video. Minus the hair. He needs the hair. He needs the blonde dreadlock shock atop. Well, now you're talking yeah. about later Bray Wyatt. Like Bray Wyatt first came out. He was kind of that big ruffian beard out of Louisiana thing. Oh, yeah. Straight yeah. out of uh, Last House on the Left kind of thing. Yeah, yeah it exactly. Was weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, after he uh, it's about 79, he left and went down to uh, someplace a little special for George down to Georgia Championship Wrestling. Oh, yeah. Down there, he added, and you may have, need to help me out here, George, because a couple of these guys I've heard of, some of them I'm not familiar with. Mask Superstar? Yeah, absolutely. Mask Superstar was essentially the enforcer or the assassin. He was that type of character okay. in GCW. Okay. Because I know he added him. He added um, Killer Carl Knox, uh, Toro Tanaka, which I loved watching Toro Tanaka. That guy was a beast. And Professor Toro Tanaka, for those of you who are not wrestling fans and just happen to be listening to a wrestling podcast, um, <laughs> he actually is big in film and TV. One of yes. his most notable roles was in Schwarzenegger's The Running Man as uh, Sub-Zero, mm -hmm. the ice skating hockey blade wielding thing. <laughs> if you watched a movie in the late eighties, early nineties that had a very large Asian American that was performing any form of martial arts, it's a good chance it was professor Tanaka. Yeah. And you know, I, for years, I knew he had been a professional wrestler, obviously, but hmm. 
for some reason, I also got him confused as the gentleman who portrayed Odd Job back in the old Goldfinger James oh, Bond yeah, movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, I yeah. could see but that. I could see it's that. It's not the same guy at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't. But for my young mind back then, I was always like, "Oh, that's Sub Zero." No, not even close. Lar- large Asian man. I understand. Uh, <laughs> um, but also, most importantly, one of the biggest add-ons that uh, Heenan added to what he was now deeming the Heenan family was Ernie Ladd. Ernie, the that was cat a Ladd. huge. Right? That was huge for him. Yeah. Well, and Ernie Ladd had like big popularity outside of professional wrestling. He professional football player, right? Yes. And he had people just interested in professional wrestling just because of his name. Like he was Ron Simmons before Ron Simmons. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was up there with like Butch Reed kind of feel to him. Yeah. You know, he was, yeah. he was definitely just a wild man. So 79 passes, he decides to go back to AWA reforms the Heenan family with Bockwinkle, and now he's added a couple of other people to it. Now, he brought, if I'm not mistaken, he brought Ernie Ladd and Killer Carl Cox with him. I believe okay. they went to AWA as well. But uh, he added Super Destroyer Mark II. I love that name. It's <laughs> just a <laughs> yeah, great name. Mark II, like Iron Man. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Mr. Saito, he added. And most importantly, and this is one that he carried with him for quite some time, even moving into the future, the Olympian Ken Patera, the world's strongest man before Mark Henry. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, you've got Ken Patera and Nick Bockwinkle in the same yeah. family. Nick Bockwinkle was the North's version of Harley Raced who was from the Midwest or yep. Ric Flair from the South. I mean, even though Ric Flair started with the AWA and Vern Gagne trained him and whatnot, but Nick Bockwinkle, he was the man oh, yeah. in that area. Right. And you he put him and Ken Patera, who's got the Olympic pedigree behind him. You've also got Ernie Ladd with the NFL pedigree behind him. And Mr. Saito, yeah. holy hell, could that guy do a promo that you never understood, <laughs> but were completely but you knew exactly what he was saying. By. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you couldn't understand a word that was coming out of the man's mouth, but you just didn't care because you knew you were wa- witnessing something special. That brings up a point. The entire reason you put somebody like a Bobby Heenan with another wrestler, because remember, we're talking about Heenan forming these families. A lot of this is formed by the booker of the area. Mm-hmm. That's the person right. writing the storyline and deciding what talent to bring into the organization and whatnot. But why do you put somebody like a Bobby Heenan with these wrestlers? It's because he can speak for them better than they can speak themselves. He becomes their mouthpiece. Yeah, he becomes their mouthpiece. But Bobby Heenan had this unique talent for enhancing really great Mike workers. Yeah. And we're going to see that later on. I mean, he worked with some tremendous Mike workers, some of the best promo guys in the business, but you could still add a Bobby Heenan to that person or that group. And he just ratchets it up to 11 on your scale so easily and smoothly. And he draws, he drew heat maybe better than almost any manager in the history of pro wrestling. And, And that really gets personified later on, but as he's going through GCW and AWA, that's where you really start to see him develop all of the speaking points that he had for every one of his family members. Kind of a fun fact about uh, Bobby Heenan and uh, leaving the AWA. When all the the big superstars were leaving, the AWA had a it was like a six week or uh, three month, something like that, kind of non compete. And oh yeah, 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 I remember this. A lot of the a lot of the wrestlers they broke it. A lot of the talent broke it. Uh, Bobby Heenan actually stayed and completed that agreement. You bring up a good point of the people that you see doing interviews about Bobby Heenan 
after he passed. The one thing that I think was universal in all of those interviews and commentaries about the man was that he was extremely loyal, yeah. very honest and trustworthy, which, as you know, in professional wrestling being kind of a carny thing. business. Yeah, it's not right. really something you see very often. I mean, you have guys who always have heat with different people in a place like maybe, you know, two guys get into it in a locker room or somebody messes with somebody's wife outside of the events business or something. Business deals but, go bad, all kinds of yeah. people that are just shit bags like the Ultimate Warrior and New Jack. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to start a whole <laughs> referendum on professional wrestling in this podcast. This is, we're focusing on Bobby Eaton here, but yeah, he was known for being a stand-up guy. And yes. I think that's probably why so many of these pro wrestlers really were comfortable working with him as their manager on screen. And he even mentored a lot of these people off screen. And we're going to get into the probably most successful run for Bobby Heenan, which is the 1980s. I don't know that there was a better manager for your dollar in the 1980s. There's several people that are really up there. You know, you got your Jimmy Hart's Mr. Fuji, Mr. Fuji, you got, you got a lot of people, but Bobby Heenan was the man in the eighties and Barry is going to educate us right (laughs) when we come back. Listen up humanoids. We're coming right back with this one. Before the slam, make sure you catch the fever. Fever? Hulk Hogan has a fever. It's a WWF special of epidemic proportion. I've been reborn again. It's SummerSlam fever. It's going to be out of hand. The Ultimate Warrior and all the WWF superstars will be here. Don't touch that dog. When the temperature in the ring reaches the boiling point, you've got the fever. SummerSlam fever. A WWF special on USA. Sunday at 8, 7 central. So around about 1984 is when Bobby Heenan made the move over to World Wrestling Federation. Actually, Mm. specifically, it was September 84. Um, He joined a gentleman by the name of Big John Studd. And the funny thing is, initially, it was supposed to be Jesse the Body Ventura that was going to be the first member of the Heenan family in the WWF. But he had to retire because of some health issues. But there were so many great promos that were cut back then with Jesse just selling Big John Stud, selling mm. the strength, selling there I still remember little, you know, vignettes that they would do of you'd see like Big John Stud doing bench press tests on this and Jesse's over there doing commentary with him about trying to set records on bench <laughs> pressing and all this other kind of stuff. I mean it was he really knew how to sell it. And of course Bobby's right there beside him just going right along with it. Most managers in the professional wrestling business are heels. Yes. Almost exclusively. There are very few good guy managers or, I mean, hell, even valets are often heels. For the most part, yeah. It's generally to help a person draw even more heat. Bobby Heenan, he crossed over later on, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. He crossed over to one of those heels that no matter how heelish he was, you still respected what he was doing. And people would start cheering for him later in life. But at this point in the WWF, when he first comes in, you couldn't have found a more hated individual. (laughs) 
Well, and then he did the smart move is he went back to AWA and brought to Ken Patera and Buddy Rose over with him as well. About a year or so later, he started adding other members to the family. He added this guy named The Missing Link. Now, <laughs> The Missing Link was just an odd dude. Again, another name for Aaron as I'm yeah, watching yeah, him on video. Definitely, all he needs is a mask. And then one of my favorite heels from the, the time frame, adorable Adrian Adonis. Oh, Lord. With the flower shop. Uh, just mm. Adrian Adonis. I mean, he tr- basically he was supposed to be the uh, reincarnation of Gorgeous George. Right. And he tried to really sell that, we'll say androgynous. Sure. Uh, point of view. Yeah, sexually ambiguous. Uh, yes, sexually ambiguous. That's a good way to put it. The funny thing is, this is the first time I can remember this type of thing happening. In uh, September of 85, there was actually a trade made between managers. And I don't recall ever remember seeing that happening anywhere else. <laughs> it was between uh, him and Jimmy Hart. And at the time, Jimmy Hart was managing a gentleman by the name of King Kong Bundy, mm. which basically the man was a sphere with a head. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was a beast. <laughs> But they decided to make a trade and Adrian Adonis went over to the Hart Foundation and King Kong Bundy came into the stable of the Heenan family. Captain Kiwi, do you remember these guys? I mean, this was maybe a little bit before your time, but do you remember any of these wrestlers or their association with Heenan at that point? Uh, Vaguely, I remember King Kong Bundy uh, going back and watching some old VHS tapes uh, back in, you know, 91, 92, but I don't have any any, uh, very vivid memories of him. If you get a chance, go back and watch some of them. It's definitely worth the watch. I mean, if nothing else, just to see how outlandish this was for like 85. It was crazy. This is an educational uh, uh, (laughs) podcast for me. (laughs) What have you learned, Dorothy? Um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the next real big. I acquis- figured you might. Yeah, Let's, you know, you know, this one got a little special to you, George. Go the ahead. The next acquisition that Heenan picks up, and this is in about a year later in 86, he starts managing Harley Race. Now, at the time, Harley Race was my father, one of his favorite wrestlers, because Harley Race with that body shape that he had, which was legit tough guy body shape, with the tattoo that he had on his arm, which was very much like a Navy sailor type of thing like my father had, and just the no-nonsense, I'm going to get in there, pound you into the mat, and then jump and do a diving headbutt and crush you and end your match. They moved him into this kind of odd, handsome gimmick in WWE. They bleached his hair. (laughs) Yep. And they, I think they tried to turn him into what was super popular over in Georgia championship at the time, Ric Flair. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Harley Race and Ric Flair had had many great matches prior to that over in the NWA, and everybody was well aware of that. But as far as the look, you couldn't get two more polar opposites. Right. Ric Flair and Harley Race. (laughs) And I think they were trying to do that because they were trying to steal some of the thunder a little bit because Georgia Championship, NWA, those organizations were coming up. And I think Vince McMahon Jr. recognized the threat to what he was trying trying to build. But if you're going to do that, let's give him a little bit of extra boost and let's put him with Bobby Heenan. Yes. People hate Harley race, but people don't really hate Harley race as a blonde. Yeah. So what are you going to do to make him really get hated? Put him with Bobby Heenan. That's the man. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and had you not had Handsome Harley Race, you never would have had Ravishing Rick Rude. I mean, it, it was almost a prototype for what was Rick Rude going to become. Well, it was the alpha, like the first beta test of what yes. that character could be. Rick Rude absolutely dominated that character for many years. I mean, there's nothing equivalent to Rick Rude, but true, you're right. This character, that's the prototype for you. It's a good way to put it. To your point, George, you know, WWF had this bad tendency of they didn't want to believe or they didn't put into their promotions that any other wrestling existed anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. They were their own entity. They were all that was with wrestling. And if anyone came into WWE, all that mattered was the history of WWE. They didn't care about that. Yeah, they were very cult like almost like they wanted their fans to only hear or think about their storylines. Whereas in the territory days, you know, which this is kind of near the near the end of the territory days when you get into the mid 80s, right. early 90s. Um, that's when you start to see the the territory systems going away from those storylines that could move from location to location to location to a more, okay, this is our story and we're going to protect it. We're going to kayfabe. And right. if any other organization takes it, I mean, there were even lawsuits behind some of these storylines oh, back yeah. then. Oh yeah, big time. But I, I will give the WWF credit on one thing, and that is they they figured out a very smart way to give Harley Race the props that he deserved mm-hmm. without actually giving any kind of an acknowledgement to anything that he had done in the past. Yep. And the way that they did that is they developed something called the King of the Ring tournament. And yes, yes. Harley Race was the <laughs> first King of the Ring. Yeah, and it was a great way to also legitimize why you have Bobby Heenan with him because as yep. the King, Harley Race doesn't speak. No, he's the king. He's above talking to the to the masses or to the little people. And that's what Bobby Heenan becomes for him is just like, you know, the White House press secretary for a president. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good way to put it, actually. Yeah. And and, and with that, you can really just kind of see the snowball effect for the Heenan family once Harley Race comes in. Because after that, you know, in 86, he picks up Hercules from uh, from a man named Slick. (laughs) Hercules, I have the power. Yes. (laughs) Bobby Heenan got him from another manager called Slick. And this was a guy who was kind of like a skinny pimp character. Yes. And I think it's interesting because when they did that, there were, it was twofold. Number one, bringing Hercules in to bolster the family, give the family an enforcer, a strength person. But also it was meant to show a push for that character because he went from a lower tiered manager to Mm. the highest tiered manager in the organization. It was kind of like, okay, you've graduated from the minor leagues to the big leagues now. He really just kind of opened the door for Bobby Heenan to be seen as, to quote Ric Flair, the man when mm-hmm. it came to being managers. And his next acquisition probably cemented him as the the icon for all managers to follow. Um, he picked up a gentleman by the name of Super Machine <laughs> that was a masked wrestler that was yep. this behemoth of a man and quote unquote, no one knew who he was back in 87. <laughs> Yeah, because nobody could figure out from his body shape or his walk or his gait or Or anything. his wardrobe or anything else. Who he was because he had a mask. Because he later turned out to be Andre the Giant. (laughs) (laughs) And to be honest with you, Bobby Heenan has cut some great promos. Bobby Heenan has done some amazing voice work for any number of different performers. But during that 
stint right around WrestleMania three, where they were setting up for Hogan versus Andre. Mm-hmm. I will go on record by saying, I think that's some of Heenan's best work because I think you're right. he, yeah. he knew how to sell Andre, who was a face for the longest time as the worst human being that ever walked the planet and working with him and Jesse Ventura, that whole scene where he rips the cross off of his chest and you see the scratch. Right. Yeah. That, that is, is, is promo gold is what that is. Yeah, and I think that when you're talking about how Andre the Giant is already the eighth wonder of the world. He yes. is the mega yep. wrestler that is literally known around the world. Like everybody knows who Andre the Giant is, but the man couldn't cut a promo to save his life. The work that he did in Princess Bride is mm-hmm. incredibly amazing considering how poorly he was on the microphone in professional wrestling. Well, to this it's so day, hard to understand one of my, Yeah, well, not just, I don't mind not being able to understand somebody, but for as imposing a physical figure as he was, yeah. He did not have the same like the same presence of character. That's like a his fair way to say character it. presence yeah. was much smaller than his physical presence was. He yeah. almost came off as meek a lot of times. And okay. when you take somebody like that who's a little bit more quiet, and we all know Andre's story, you know, he's talked about the chronic pain he suffered throughout his life, the drinking right. Uh, yeah. the the mental problems that he dealt with being who he was. So we understand exactly why he maybe wasn't the most gregarious person on the microphone. But you put him with somebody who is the most gregarious person on the microphone with Bobby Heenan, <laughs> you're right. The work that those two did together, brilliant. It was, it was phenomenal. It was yeah. phenomenal. And then it made that forward, match with Hulk Hogan way better than the match itself. Oh, God, yes. The, if, to go back and watch the match without watching any of the promos or the, mm-hmm. the the build up to it, it really wasn't that good of a match. No. But you go back and watch the whole story from start to finish and you are just you're in it for the ride. And and a lot of that's attributed to, to Heenan. A um, couple of other notable pickups that they had for the uh, the Heenan family right after that in 87, you saw uh, the Islanders, Haku and Tama, one of the best tag teams that I can remember watching of that era uh, come into the fold for them. And a gentleman by the name of Ravishing Rick Rude, as we previously yeah. mentioned. <laughs> Who's that? You. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's your hero. Don't even lie. He was who every man wanted to be and every woman wanted to be with. And yes, that's a line pretty much straight from Bobby Heenan's mind. Now, Rick Rude used that himself mm-hmm. later on, but Bobby Heenan's the guy who comes up with 90% of the lines that these guys use as their catchphrases later on. One of the last things that he did in WWF, a little bit considered, I don't know, maybe a failure because of the people that you have, not necessarily the what they accomplished, but the expectations of what they should have accomplished possibly. In 88, yes, Arne Anderson and Tully Blanchard jump ship. They leave the Four Horsemen, which was blasphemy. Nobody saw that coming, really, <laughs> with those two guys. Now, you had the fourth guy in the Four Horsemen always coming in and out. One, you know, it'd be Barry Windham or it'd be Sting. Or it'd, or- yeah, it could be the, the list any goes number on and of on. people, different people. Yeah. But Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard, they were the core of the wrestling group. They left, they go to WWF, and they put them with Bobby Heenan, whose nickname yeah. at the time was The Brain, and they call them the Brain Busters because of the wrestling move, I guess, which, yeah, I mean, neither one of them really performed well. 
<laughs> well, and the funny thing is the brain buster was actually a legal move in WWE or WWF right. at the time. They couldn't use it. So here you have a tag team named after a move that can't be used in the freaking ring. I don't understand that. And, and let us not forget the critical success that was the Red Rooster. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> well, Terry I guess we're going to start talking about the decline now because oh, God, holy yeah. hell was that awful. I mean, that was such a turd. And I'm not blaming this one on Bobby Heenan at all or the problems with the lack of success with the Brain Busters. Yeah. I think it was just really poor writing. I understand later on, I've seen some interviews and I've read some articles um, that Bobby Heenan gave that he was totally against both of those situations. He yeah. said, don't put me with Arne Anderson and Tully Blanchard. They need to be their own thing. They're both great mic workers and I can't really enhance what they do because we do the exact same thing. Yeah. And he told him, he said, Terry Taylor should not be a professional wrestler. Put him in the writing room. That's where he's the best for the organization, which turns out to be true. I where mean, Terry Taylor up. had a exactly. long yeah, writing career in the booking up. committee <laughs> for years. So I, I, I don't want to lay those problems at Bobby Heenan's feet, but they were evidence of his, I, I hate to say it's his decline, but of the decline of his managerial career. We'll just say a change in wrestling. Sure. That's 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 what it boiled yeah. down to is that wrestling was changing. You were seeing a lot of things going different directions because, I mean, it's late 80s or, you know, starting to go into the 90s. So it's around that time period that you start to see some major changes going on. Yeah. And when we come back after the break, we're going to get into the decade of the 90s and how Bobby Heenan tried to navigate that area and what eventually was the decline of the Heenan family. Hello, I'm Jeff Jarrett, and if you want to see body slams, if you want to see drop kicks, if you want to see the wildest, the craziest, but the best wrestling action there is in the country, well then tune in right here to USWA Wrestling every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. to Fox 41, WDRB, Louisville. And if you want to see live action, come down to the gardens on Tuesday night, 7.30 bell time. But right here, tune in to WDRB, Louisville, 11 o'clock, Sunday morning. Sunday morning at 11 on Fox 41. Like I said uh, before, this is this is a, a big educational podcast for me, uh, George <laughs> Barry. Both of you have been teaching me about Bobby the Brain Heenan as a manager. Uh, when I came into wrestling, I remember him more as an announcer, and damn, what a good announcer he was! Oh yeah, I think he was arguably the greatest heel announcer of all time. There, there are some great heel announcers. Statement. It's a bold statement, but uh, you, if you put any of anybody you can think of up against him, I'm I think I'm going to win that debate. I'll definitely I, say I he was one agree. of the most creative ones. He had he he kept you entertained and he kept you in the conversation. That's sure. certain. But he was still at the beginning of the nineties. He was still a manager. He still oh, yeah. had actually, even though we talked in the last segment about, you know, he's kind of declining with some of the the brain buster and the red rooster cockadoo bullshit with God damn that mohawk. <laughs> really pissed me off. I'm still thinking about that. That red mullet. That oh, red mohawk mullet. <laughs> if I had more but, hair, that's what I would do. He did have a couple of more really interesting successes. Number one, he, again, in one of these trade things, Barry, like you were talking about earlier, yeah, he, he got to do that. the Barbarian from Mr. Fuji. And the Barbarian yes. was a tremendous talent who could not work a mic to save no, his life. No, hush, no, hush, he's, hush. He's, uh, he, he's that day's Brock Lesnar is what it was. Well, no, I mean, Brock Lesnar can at least put a sentence together. This well. man could not do that. Okay, that's that that era's 
Bobby Lashley. You feel better now? Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I'll give you that one. And can, can we just take a second to talk about the one acquisition that he made that was not just good, not just great, oh, but shit. it was absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think those vignettes that he did, especially at the beginning oh. of Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning's yes. uh, run, where he's, you know, this is when Bobby Heenan puts the towel around the neck. Right. Because mm-hmm. he's mimicking Kurt Henning's, you know, whole, you know, athlete can do it all. The plays tennis, plays basketball, jumps 17 miles in a long jump in an Olympic sport, whatever the <laughs> hell thing that they threw at you in those vignettes. But Bobby Heenan was it was like he was a he was a snively evil Howard Cosell in yes. those vignettes. It was yes. really fun to watch. And, and and Henning just played into it, too. The whole spitting the gum out and smacking it away as he's walking to the ring. You know, just every element of it was so much fun to watch. This was truly the guy that you love to hate. Yeah. And we saw later on Kurt Henning without Bobby Heenan does fine on the microphone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was but good. I mean, he's, it's he's one of those enhancement it. situations yes. where when you put Bobby Heenan with a guy like Kurt Henning, it's it's magic. I mean, that was probably his last most memorable memorable greatest managerial run in any organization he was a part of. Now, Aaron, I'm guessing that when Bobby moves more to the commentary team at WWF and later WCW, that's kind of the memories that you have a little bit more of, right? Right. At the time, I was strong, hardcore WWF fan. I'd catch WCW every once in a while, but uh, I remember Bobby Heenan as you know a damn good commentator when he was paired up with uh, Vince McMahon. When Vince McMahon was still doing his uh, announcing, I'm not the owner of the company uh, persona. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm not the owner of the company. I'm just the announcer. (laughs) (laughs) Just the back and forth. And I remember uh, there's one WrestleMania, I believe, where Bobby Heenan was on a donkey or something like that. He was coming down to ringside backwards. The one in Vegas. Yes. Yeah. I remember this one when it was at Caesars Palace. I think it was. Yes. Maybe that was a SummerSlam, or I, I can't remember. I, I It was some pay-per-view. I remember it vividly. I, the minute you said that, I was like, <laughs> okay, I remember this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, when he started moving over to, to WCW, that's when you really, you knew... <sighs> To, to, not to sound cheese ball, but you could tell that the body was failing him, but the brain was still working. Right. I think a little bit later, yeah, his the physicality part started to decline. But when he first joined WCW, mm. he was still Bobby the Brain Heenan. And so much so that there were several times when wrestlers would chase him around the announce booth and oh, yeah. chase him out and stuff because he would say uh, like very controversial things, especially considering wh- who did you have prior to him? as heel announcers. You had Jesse Ventura. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jesse Ventura's style of heel announcing was more about attacking the other announcer than it was attacking the wrestlers. Like he would call out, you know, the good guys, blah, 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 all this bad stuff. But he was more about confronting the other announcer's hypocrisy. That's Jesse Ventura's right. shtick. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Bobby Heenan's shtick was I'm just cutting loose on everybody. <laughs> he would cut loose on the other the announcers on his team. Dude, he'd cut loose on the fans. What are you talking he about? He would cut loose on the fans. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. He would cut loose on anybody. I think that he really legitimized the three announcer format. Yes. Long before anyone else ever attempted it. When we start off in the 70s, you've got a single announcer. You've got a Lance Hendrickson. You've got a Gordon Soley. You know, you've got one person that's doing yeah. the interviews and the main match calls and everything. As you get into the late 70s, all the way through the 80s, you've got two-man teams. You've got the 
predominant Vince McMahon Jr. And then you've got the color commentator of a Jesse Ventura or a Gorilla Monsoon and, you know, those types of things. But it's not until WCW where you've got Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, and then Bobby Heenan that you start getting the real solid three-man teams that honestly carried an entire decade of wrestling. Well, I would actually say it it didn't even really develop until after Jim Ross had left and you brought in uh, Mike Tanay because that's when you really saw Bobby coming into his own on his interactions with Shivani. Yes. That's where it was really great because Tanae I mean, was just kind of I think he kind of had to though because yeah. Tanae was a joke as an announcer. But I think that's where Bobby got that opening to be able to just cut loose and unleash the dragons whenever he wanted to and he did such a good job of it. Mm. Uh, I mean, right. it, it, you could tell in, he was with WCW for pretty much almost the entire run, if I remember correctly. I mean, yeah, he was there yeah. for a long, long time. Yeah. Finally, uh, I want to say he was there until, well, yeah, actually until WCW folded. So, yeah. Well, Bobby the Brain Heenan had a long and storied career, but I think in our next segment, we really need to address quickly uh, a little bit of personal issues, some of his health things that we all know really well, unfortunately, and the legacy of what Bobby the Brain Heenan meant to professional wrestling. Superstars of the World Wrestling Federation are finally coming to the Superdome. Friday night, 8 p.m., the Junkyard Dog returns home to battle Terry Funk and manager Jimmy Mouth of the South Hearts. Hulkamania hits New Orleans when Hulk Hogan puts his WWF heavyweight belt on the line. Against the Iron Sheik, Jesse the Body Ventura meets Uncle Elmer, plus Valentine, Beefcake, King Kong Bundy, and much more. Tickets now on sale at all Ticketmaster locations and the Dome. Friday night, the superstars of WWF. With the fall of WCW, Bobby the Brain Heenan kind of stepped away from professional wrestling. As you mentioned, Barry, that was kind of his last hurrah, yeah. really. Um, he also started having some physical issues outside of the broken neck, but unfortunately in that same physical area, he, he got throat cancer in 2002. Yeah. And it was not until... I think like 2008 or 2009 that I heard his voice after the operations and everything. It was totally different. Yeah. Oh, it was so sad to me. It was so sad. I mean, he didn't have the Jesse Ventura gravel. No. But he had the most unique voice that it wasn't whiny, but it was explosive. It was just like. Boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom. That's the way he talked. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he definitely had that in his pronunciation, but I mean, even just the tone. Like, oh. it wasn't Weasley, but it was. Yeah. It wasn't weak, but it was. It was strong, but it was also, it was just all at the same time. He, he embodied all these different characteristics. I could once in a while hear some bass in his voice mm-hmm. and it'd be like, oh, this is the serious Bobby Heenan now. Um, this is when he's like doing a shoot. I would right. hear that tone. Um, and then there was the time when he was going off on one of the announcers that was kind of high pitched and nasally a little bit. I, I got to feel like that that was on purpose because he did it so beautifully and perfectly. Yeah. I mean, he was he was definitely, if not the best in the game, one of the best. Yeah. And oh, yeah. just the, the way that he could adapt who he was, how he approached things and how he spoke about things while live was probably better than anyone that that's in the game today. I mean, 
mean, he could adjust on the fly quicker than anybody I have ever seen. And you say the phrase while alive, that leads us to the inevitable fact that in 2017, 72 years of age, Bobby Heenan passes away. He loses his battle with throat cancer. And I think everyone in the professional wrestling world on all sides in every organization felt that loss. I know I saw not just WWE tributes, but tributes in all the smaller promotional territory systems, ROH. I mean, everybody took notice of his passing because he was the greatest heel commentator of all time. You couple that with being arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest manager of all time. Well, it's it's funny to think that he knew how to do that balance of Mm -hmm. being, you know, representing the strong guy, but also being the weasel heel, you know, just knowing how to play off of both sides of that coin and could do it so well. You know, he's the guy that would talk a big game until someone stood up to him and then he, you know, figured out a back door. Yeah. And and I really think that kind of set that tone and that template for so many others to follow in suit that it's become so common now that you forget that somebody had to start it. Sure. And the guy that started it was Bobby Heenan. Were there bad guy color commentators before Bobby Heenan? Yeah, there yeah. were. I mean, we talked about Jesse Ventura in this episode several times, mm-hmm. but I don't think anybody takes Jesse Ventura as the gold standard of that role as much as they would a Bobby Heenan. And then you have other announcers later on, Jerry Lawler. I think he's even said it more than once where he just stole everything he could from what Bobby Heenan did because Jerry Lawler was never known as a bad guy. He was a face for years and years and years until he took that announcing role. And they were like, okay, you're with Jim Ross. Jim Ross is going to be the good old boy with barbecue sauce. You've got to be the bad guy. (laughs) Why did he have to be the bad guy? Because Bobby Heenan was the greatest bad guy announcer of all time, and they needed something to compete with that. They needed JR and the King to do something that could compete with WCW with Bobby Heenan and who the hell ever they were going to have on that desk with him. Absolutely. It's a good point. I mean, you know, and if you think about it, you've had, you know, like you said, Jerry Lawler did a great job of it. Jesse Ventura did a great job of it. And there were a lot of great heel announcers. There were a lot of heel announcers that sucked. Do I need mm. to bring up Jonathan Coachman? Uh, I'm not even <laughs> but, going there. Uh, <laughs> but nobody, nobody could hold a candle to the way that Heenan did that because the other announcers, you know, to your point, George, you kind of knew what they were going to go after. You know, you knew that that Lawler was going to make some bad corny joke as a heel and it just sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. You knew that Ventura was going to, you know, focus predominantly on the wrestler itself, not so much on anything else. But with Heenan, you never knew where he was going to go. Well, and that's right. the best part is that, you know, one minute he could be ripping the the performer down, he could be ripping the announcer down, the location, the fans, the what, what he had for breakfast that morning. There was one, <laughs> yeah. I remember this, where he actually went off on what happened for breakfast that morning. And I'm like, where in the hell is that coming from? <laughs> you know, we we're talking about the Heenan family as an organization with this podcast, but it's been very difficult to separate the man from the organization. True. Um, I think the reason for that is as the manager, the role that he provided that was such a touchstone for most professional wrestling fans was that weasel role. I mean, he was known as Bobby the weasel for a long time outside of Bobby the brain. Um, 
Bobby the Brain was the nickname he gave himself that people used, but the weasel was the name Gorilla Monsoon gave him that everybody said behind his back. And as a manager, I think the weasel role was probably the most successful part of his character. It's what made you think that when he was negotiating the next match for his guy, he was that, you know, that weaselly lawyer type in a conference room getting the green M&M bowl for his guy, (laughs) right? (laughs) Or he was the guy who would be standing down by the ring sign to distract the referee at the key moment of the match or the yeah. one who would get in the mind of his his, his person's opponent, you know, get yeah, in their right. mind to make them perform poorly in the next match. He was the one, you know, setting the strategy for his guy to become the next world champion. That's that weasel role. And it's weird because if you go back and look at it, it's almost a bipolar sense because he could switch back and forth at any point in time. And when you think about in wrestling history, there are so many people that performed a great character, a great great image, a great archetype, if you will, where they played up the strong guy or the American hero or the, you know, the villain or whatever. Very comic book character-ish. Exactly. Yeah. Very comic book character-ish. How many people can you honestly think of that played not one, but two characters at the same time so successfully? Yeah. I mean, that's what puts him at the top of the heap. Yeah. That's what put his uh, wrestling family at the title of this podcast episode. And- that's one of the main reasons why he'll be remembered for years and years to come in the professional wrestling business. Gentlemen, we have had a wonderful time, at least I have, oh, yeah. uh, discussing Absolutely. this organization with you. Barry, thank you so much for doing all the research on this. The Heenan family, I knew a fair amount about. I did not know half the stuff that you <laughs> did, and uh, I appreciate you putting all the work and effort into this. And Kiwi, there will be a test later. Wait, I, I, I've been asleep the whole time. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you wake up because in the very next episode, it's kind of going to be your episode. We're going to talk all about Captain Kiwi's contribution to season one here on Turnbuckles and Territories. We're going to go into the dark side a little bit, gentlemen. We're going to go into macabre mishaps, talking about the Von Eric curse. Ooh, yeah. That's, oh man. (laughs) Aaron is like speechless and he's the one that came up with the idea. I know. It's it's a rough one. I've teared up quite a few times doing the research. Yeah. It has to be done though. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to talk about territory system wrestling, you're going to talk about the Von Erichs at some point. That's for certain. We're going to get back into that next week. Barry, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, you ham and egger. I'm glad you showed up. Captain Kiwi, always a pleasure to have you here. It's been educational and a pleasure. And fourth listener, we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Before the days of internet and in YouTube, we was after booing Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude and Jake would be the break. Our theme song is courtesy of nerdcore hip-hop artist Beefy. Explore his work at beefiness.com. Turnbuckles and Territories is a production of Gen X Grown Up and a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Turnbuckles and Territories, we be stuck to screens in 1980s and we can't feed them and meet them believe.